This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a super age, right? We bring you insights on body, mind, and living life to its fullest from some of the super agers around us. Today on the show, we've got a really interesting guy, uh, Nir Barzilai. Nir is the founder of the Institute of Aging Research at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He has a new book called Age Later, Healthspan, Lifespan, and the New Science of Longevity. Nir's a, a really strong advocate of taking metformin every day, and he's, um, you know, we're going to find out some of the other things that he's up to. Um, it's very interesting, this idea of, um, you know, metformin is something that's somewhat controversial with some people. I mean, some people take it all the time. Um, I'm sure he can tell us a lot more about that. And it, it sort of goes to the idea of you know what are we what are we willing to do to live better and live longer? Um, you know, are there uh, adverse consequences to some of these things? I don't know. He's a scientist. He's going to tell us. The, you know, the idea of how much maintenance is the right amount of maintenance. I think is something that all of us really struggle with every day. And and in terms of maintenance, you know, are we talking about um, how much exercise, how how careful you're being with your food, or in terms of, um, you know, something as simple as like your wardrobe. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, it might sound really simplistic, but I know I feel a lot better during the day if I think that I'm dressed properly, <laughs> vain as I am. Uh, so Nir's, um, Nir's an interesting guy, um, and he's, he's very much into the idea of superaging, and I'm, I'm hoping he's going to tell us a little bit about his centenarians. I mean, he talks a lot about it in his book, his uh, body research is really based primarily on people that live over 100 and, you know, why that is and, and what they're about. So really interesting guy coming up. Uh, so this is kind of an exciting moment. We have our first sponsor on the Super Age show. <laughs> I think it's awesome. Um, Elysium Health. So, you know, you guys have all seen the articles that I've written on Aegis about Elysium Health. You know, I'm a big fan uh, and, you know, I'm just into being healthy and tracking my health. I've been taking their NAD plus supplement basis for years, and I monitor my biological age with index. And now they've got this new second supplement called Matter for long-term brain health. It was created in partnership with Oxford University. And check this out. Did you know that if you're, even if you're healthy, you lose like 20% of your brain volume over your lifespan? Yuck. That just sounds like a terrible outcome. <laughs> Not good. So, Super Age listeners can get 15% off of Matter by visiting explorematter.com slash superage and using the promo code superage. That's explorematter.com slash superage and the promo code superage. The, you know, if your goal is, you know, like mine, become the best version of yourself, then health of the brain is absolutely essential. I take matter every day. Most of my friends do. I think you should check it out. Oh, that was my first read. How'd I do? <laughs> Welcome, Nir. How are you today? Thank you. I'm doing very well. How are you? Well, you know, not so bad. Um, I don't have COVID, so I'm doing good. <laughs> well, I had COVID. You did? And, so, and it was mild. Ah. And and I'm doing very well, but also I'm living now without fear. I'm antibody positive. So this was mild and over. So I'm in a good shape, actually. Well, that's amazing. How long do you anticipate the antibodies will last for? I, I, I would like them to last uh, until I can get immunization, but we don't know, right? I mean, in some people, it's kind of short. In most people, it's still lasting in the world. So let's see. Wow. That's amazing. I, I had something called COVID toe. Um, yes, the COVID toe ended up not, to, not being specific COVID. And I right. had two other people who had COVID toe only, and they were antibody negative. <laughs> yes, I had the same. I, help me to understand that. What, what happened there? 
I, I really don't know. I really don't understand. It will, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing that will show up. Uh, and for me, the guess is that it's not really related directly to COVID. But if it is, it's really fascinating. It's the, you know, it's the weirdest thing. I'd, I'll just tell you, like, um, one day, uh, one of my toes became sort of red and irritated. And the next day, all of my toes were bright red, as if I had like frostbite or something. And I, I, it was just really odd. And I didn't really think much about it. And then a week later, my toes were on the cover of the New York Times. And I thought, oh yeah, that's, and then they just went away, but I'm, um, I'm antibody negative. So right. I, I have no idea. Right, right. Um, I, I wish I had my, my, the same level of fearlessness that you do, that would be comforting. Yeah, I, I really, it really changed, uh, it, it, it really changed. Uh, look, there was the fear when I had it, and I had it very mild. You know, I'm on metformin after all. <laughs> right, right. I had it very mild. And, but, you know, and it, it really only for two days. But I would go to sleep at night trying to see if it's in my lungs, right? I would breathe deeply. Yeah. Oh, was it okay? Was it, is there something there? And this fear is, is with you, but yes. once it's gone, <laughs> you're just a happy guy. <laughs> Wow, that is, um, I, I, I actually, I, I wear a device called a Whoop, which is, um, is a tracking device. It monitors uh, my, uh, my heart rate variability and also my respiration. And every day in the morning, I look at it just to see, is there any difference in respiration? Um, and there hasn't been, so I don't, but yes, I'm jealous. I want your antibodies. <laughs> I, I didn't mean it that way, but uh, it's okay. I, I, I was more reacting that you asked me, how, how are you? I mean, how many times somebody asks a doctor, how, how are you? <laughs> I'm not used to it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, it's uh, doctors are humans. Um, so um, for, for those who don't know, uh, near, um, tell us, um, I know, uh, you know, there's the metformin study that I, that I want to ask you about, but um, what are you working on today? What's, what's of interest to you today? Well, let me say, first of all, my major efforts today are not in the scientific arena. That's going on well. But in aging, we went from hope to promise. We were hoping that we can do something about it, right? And all of a sudden, we know <laughs> aging is flexible we can do lots of things about aging. And we're caught now at the middle of COVID-19 that have showed that, uh, that have, you know, we're naked now. We can do something, but we haven't been prepared for that. And that's terrible. And it's something that we need to bring up uh, to the public because as much as Dr. Fauci is terrific, and I, I think he's doing a great job, the way we were built in silos, you know, the National Institutes of Health have National Allergy and Immunity and National Heart and Lung and Cancer Institute. And he didn't hear that aging can be targeted. And he doesn't really understand why the elderly are, are prone to get COVID-19. So I think we have to change it. And there's actually actual things that we can do very fast and it's, it's not only for the time we have COVID, it's only also for the immunization. Immunization, the way it's developed now, is not going to work in the elderly. If it doesn't work in the elderly, you're not going to decrease the death and open the economy. And, and, and it's not only for the COVID, it's also for the next viruses or whatever comes. Um, uh, define elderly for me. Well, that's a, that's a really great question because uh, people are not using aging as much as multimorbidities. Right. Okay? So in Europe, at age 65, which 65 is an important age administratively because that's in many countries where you used to move from young, from, you know, from middle age to old. The, the age, the chronological age is meaningless, really. But, but at that point in Europe, 
uh, half of the people have two or more diseases and half do not. And, and this is how you distinguish best people who are aging slower and, and people who are aging faster. In the United States, by the way, at age 65, 90% have two or more disease. 90. 90, right. And it's driven mainly by obesity. Now, obesity accelerates aging at any, at any age. It accelerates the biology of aging. And the United States population on average is fatter than the European population. And so for me, the definition of aging here is the multimorbidity. If you have two or more diseases, then uh, you qualify for me. We should do something uh, about it in times of COVID. So this is something um, that, that really caught my attention. You, you sent me a study here. Um, 5,700 COVID-19 patients admitted to New York hospitals found that 94% had at least one underlying chronic condition, 88% had two, uh, and then a case report, 355 COVID-19 fatalities, the Italian National Institute of Health. Virtually all the victims, 99.2, had at least one pre-existing medical condition. And I, I read this study, and their definition of pre-existing medical condition are what I would take to be as severe um, comorbidities. These are not a couple of aches and pains. Right, except they also have obesity, I believe. Exactly, and, yes. And, and, mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that adds, so you, you, you know, obese people don't think that, that it's severe for them, but it's severe from a COVID risk. I, I would add two more numbers. So you're, you're right, um, you know, that's what I said, kind of 90% are, are, have two or more diseases. But the numbers to keep in mind is that if you're over 80, you're 180 times more likely to die than if you're 20 or also that 70%, that 80% of the death of COVID are people over the age of 70. I, I mean, just to really, you know, I think we need to overwhelm and, and, and really people to understand that aging, which comorbidities for me is, is another way to say you're aging fast, is something that puts people in risk. It has its own biology and there's probably a way to uh, increase the defense of the elderly against the virus. I, I guess the, um, and, I, and I, I agree, I wanna, we'll get into that in a second. This, um, and I, I tried to, the, I'm not a statistician, and I, and, I, and I tried to go through the numbers on this. The, um, what I was wondering though, was that because of the prevalence of comorbidities are, so, so you know, if you take a population 70 to 80, the preponderance of people there that have um, a defined comorbidity will be much greater than a population of 20 to 30, I would think. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm just kind of wondering how much of the, uh, the age-related fatalities are related to you know, difficulties with inflammation that come with age or that it's just a proxy for comorbidities. Um, so look, so... We geroscientists, okay, and we have, we have this, you know, geroscience, is a, the, the study of old people is new, okay? We call it geroscience. <laughs> and we geroscientists uh, got together and basically agreed that we have what we call eight pillar, eight, not pillars, hallmarks of aging. We, we started to call it pillar, but then we said, you know, if it'll change, the pillars will collapse the building. So let's call it uh, hallmarks. And, and it's, it's more than hallmarks, it's knobs that you can, turn, you can turn them on and you could actually target aging and do something really important about it. Those hallmarks are also linked to each other. So you can actually uh, uh, target one and have effects on others. Mm. But there are three there are two hallmarks I'd like to uh, underline. One is the decreasing in, uh, immunity, yes. okay? The, the increasing immunity, and there's a biology for that. What happens to the white blood cells and their uh, uh, relative proportion and to their biology? 
And then there's inflammation, or as we call it, inflammaging. And both of those are playing a role in the sense that the immunity would suggest that you have an immune decline, and that's why you'll get the virus. And the inflammation gets into action here because, uh, you know, five days after you, ta- after you get the infection, you go into this what's called cytokine uh, crisis, your lungs are destroyed, and there's a response, an overwhelming response of that. So those are really two of the hallmarks already. But uh, the other hallmarks are also important because it's not only that we want to fix the immunity and the inflammation, we want the body itself to be more resilient when it's going to go to undergo a very severe disease. So we need to target aging as a whole and not only the immunity and the inflammation. Absolutely. Um, so I, I want to circle back to the, um, the TAME study. Um, uh, for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about that and what you found. So the, the TAME study is a study... So this, this is the problem. I'll tell you first why we did TAME, and then I'll tell you what's TAME. The problem is that aging is not considered a preventable condition by the FDA or regulatory, other regulatory places around the world. So what it means is, even if, you, if we have the best drug to target aging, uh, the healthcare providers don't have to Uh, to allow this drug to be used. They don't have to pay for that. And if the healthcare providers are not going to pay for that, then the pharmaceuticals are not going to come in to, by the way, a very active area. There's more than half a billion dollars of investments in biotechs that are doing aging and longevity uh, drugs. And the pharmaceuticals have to be there in order to pick them up and do the phase three trials and and all that in order to start having several drugs, combination of drugs and really make a progress in how we target aging. And that's why we got together and we said, we have to design a study that will check all those things that we will show the FDA that aging can be targeted. And for that, we took what I call a tool a drug that is already in the files of the FDA. A lot of people are using it around the world for diabetes. 180 million, more than 180 million are using it chronically right now. It's been around for 60 years. It's generic, it's cheap, it's really safe. We know everything that needs to be uh, to know about it. And the major thing is that when you give it to all animals, recently even fish, killing fish, lives longer, they all live longer, healthier and longer. So this is one of those drugs that can be repurposed. And, and, we and we're, will, I mean, we're talking about metformin here. Metformin. Yes. And we'll repurpose metformin to prevent aging. And what, what I'm talking about when I'm saying aging, a cluster of age-related disease. In other words, we're going to get 3,000 people and we don't really care what they have now and we, have, we really don't care which disease they're going to get next. Because if we're going to change aging, we're going to prevent your next disease, whether it's heart or cancer or diabetes or Alzheimer or cardiovascular disease or mortality. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's what we're planning. Now, this study was about to launch and in a way, and it's kind of late launching because of a funding pro- problem And I think we were lucky because if we would have launched the study in the last year, we would be now in pretty terrible shape because all the studies are stopped. We are ready to launch the study whenever we can launch the study now. Uh, The the date, the holding date is October, but you know, I'm getting less confidence with that but, and there are 14 centers around the United States, so some might open before others, but we'll start it as soon as possible. And we think that will change the thinking and the landscape and 
we could really start stopping all age-related disease and have much better aging than we do now. That's, uh, extraordinary. Um, and what kind of data do you have right now on metformin? Is there data in? Well, there, there, there couldn't have been better preliminary data for us because what happened, metformin was uh, tried in clinical trial. For example, there's this diabetes prevention program where they took people without diabetes and gave them metformin and it prevented diabetes by 30%. Or people with diabetes who got insulin and other drugs versus metformin and metformin prevented cardiovascular by 30%. All cancers, almost all cancers, except prostate, but almost all cancers, uh, people on metformin have 30% less of those cancers. Mortality, if, you, if you're diabetic on metformin, you have lower mortality than people at your age without, without diabetes, <laughs> okay? Uh, so there are studies like that. So it's not for us. That's why I'm calling it a tool. The studies have been done you know, not together in a cluster of people, but independently. Now we want to bring them together and say, look, we're targeting aging. We're going to prevent not one disease, not two diseases, not three diseases, all of them. And um, do you take metformin? Yeah, I do. I, I, I'm on metformin because I was pre-diabetic. Oh, right. And my doctor started me on, on metformin. I think it was more than five years ago. Because I'm saying five years for a, lo a long time, I think. So, <laughs> so um uh, but, but of course, I'm not pre-diabetic now, uh, but of course, I'm, I'm still on uh, metformin because now I'm, I'm kind of thinking I should be. There's, um, so I'm, I have friends who um, work in your field um, at Stanford and Harvard and MIT, and there's sort of a split, and um, some of them take metformin, they, they believe very strongly in it, and, and, and other ones don't. Um, they, they have other thoughts on it. I, for myself, I took it for about three months or so, and I, and I noticed um, my, uh, my athletic ability fell. So the, my, my ability to, um, like I, I lift weights, and so I, I know I kind of work at a maximum, and, it, and it, 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 it was strange. It fell like 10 or 15 pounds. So, so, uh, so let me tell you, that, first of all, there are papers saying that, okay? Oh, okay. There are papers saying that, and there's a paper that we just submitted. Uh, and let me tell you the whole story because I, I think as simply as I can, because it's really interesting. So we collaborated with Charlotte Peterson who took people, she, she had an idea that metformin should be synergistic to exercise. Yes, exactly. They should work better. Right. AMP kindness, they should work better. So she got a grant to take people and exercise them, exercise like you, like you described, not aerobic, right. um, exercise them, half of them on metformin, half not, half of them are on metformin. And what she demonstrated that those people have improved, both groups have improved, but the muscle of the people without metformin was bigger uh, than the muscle of people with, uh, uh, that were on exercise and metformin. So metformin blunted the hypertrophic response of the muscle, mm. consistent a little bit with what you're saying. By the way, not totally consistent because when she looked at the strength of the muscle, it was equivalent. They weren't stronger, okay? They were not, not statistically stronger. Okay, this was, by the way, in supplement four <laughs> that you don't see. <laughs> you have this whole thing about the muscle, but not about the function. Okay, um, so we collaborated with her because she had biopsies of the muscle before and after treatment. And what we demonstrated is two things that were interesting. On one hand, all the transcripts that are associated with muscle buildup were were less in when you took metformin on top of exercise, consistent with the muscle wasn't as big, okay? However, there are 500 other transcripts that showed up only the group that was on metformin too. 
And those transcripts were totally related to the biology of aging, like things associated with autophagy and mTOR and other things. So I think the balance is that uh, uh, metformin modulates the hypertrophic response to, uh, to exercise, but it protects you uh, from an aging perspective. And if at the end, the force of the muscle didn't change, you might as well be on metformin too. So interesting. I'd, um, and what's the sort of dosage they were giving people? Uh, 1,500 milligrams. Well, <laughs> okay. Um, Why? What dose are you taking? I was taking, I, I think I was, I was only taking, what was I taking? Two, I think I took two 500s in the morning. So uh, TAME is designed at 1,500 milligrams, and we were debating, you know, somebody said, you know, so let's give a higher dose because, you know, maybe we need more for aging. And others says, but it's elderly. Do we really want to get, uh, you know, give them higher dose? Maybe we should give lower dose. And right. we agreed just to give 1,500 milligrams, which is kind of the dose you used in most metformin studies. And um, do you have any thoughts on... Um... Rapamycin? The, the, so rapamycin on, on paper, not on paper, in, in mice is the strongest uh, aging targeting drug, uh, uh, gerotherapeutics. Let's call it gerotherapeutics. Love that word. Um, uh, so it elongates health span and lifespan most in many animals. So why didn't we use that rather than metformin? Because what, what is necessary for us is not to kill anyone on the way to an FDA approval. Right. And rapamycin is not a pure drug. The rapamycin targets mTOR effectively, and mTOR is a nutrient sensing that is really very relevant to aging. Uh, but, but it's not only mTOR, there's mTOR C1 and mTOR C2, and one of them would cause diabetes if you inhibit it, and the other will cause longevity if you inhibit it. So, um, so what people are trying to do out there is to get a rapamycin that's going to be safe and target the longevity and not the metabolic part of the mTOR pathway. And until this is done, I didn't want to make it prime um, and, and by the way, there is another reason metformin is in mice is not as effective as rapamycin, but it's possible that in humans it's going to flip, okay? Right. Because, because in fact, uh, you know, if you take the mortality story, the mortality in humans is 17% less if you're, on if you're diabetic on metformin than if you're not diabetic. I'm even not, it's not <laughs> apples to apples even, but 17% but, uh, is uh, more than how you can extend longevity in mice. You can extend longevity in mice by about 7% if you give them metformin. So rapamycin is very good. It touches the biology of aging, but in humans, we don't know which one is going to be better. And we just want it to be safe and go with the drug that we didn't need to, we didn't need pharmaceuticals for that. We we're just a bunch of scientists that went and got the permission to do that. We were just repurposing a drug. We didn't want to deal with pharmaceuticals, new drug, side effects, potential, uh, serious side effects, and at the end come to no good conclusion. And um, how long do you think you're going to live near? Um, well, I'm, I'm not uh, thinking that way, but you, you know, <laughs> we, we are on, a, we are, we see each other and you, you know that I'm hundred years old. So how do I look to you? you, you I, extraordinary for a hundred. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so that, that's, that's <laughs> all, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think what people want is health span. Okay. What Agreed. people want to know how much, how much they're going to uh, live healthy and, and how, and, and how sick they're going to be at the end of their lives. So 
You know, one of the research uh, projects that I have, I have centenarians. I have 750 centenarians and their families. And one of the question was, do they live healthy or just longer? I mean, do mm -hmm. they get diseases when everybody gets their diseases and now they are 40 years sick? <laughs> right. Or is lifespan and health span? And the answer is that they also lived 30, 40 years healthier than, than, uh, than their generation or even generation uh, uh, after them. Um, and this is even not what was most interesting. The most interesting thing is that they have contraction of morbidity. In other words, at the end of their life, they're sick five months and not five years like we are. Um, and this is really incredible. We have 30% of our centenarians died without a disease and without a medication. Ma many of them just didn't wake up one morning or had short hospitalization and that was that. So I think I'm not talking about longevity even. I'm saying if we could live, I don't know, 85 years, 90 years and die, then I think most people will sign for that. The deal we have now is terrible. We at age 60, you know, we get to 60 and then we start to accumulate one disease and then the next disease and, and the third disease and one treatment, two treatment and the disease and the treatment and the antagonist and the interaction with the treatment. It's really a bad, we made a, a bad deal and it doesn't have to stay like that. And what are your suggestions, um, you know, to, to increase health span? So, you know, uh, let's talk about uh, the COVID-19 time because because that's the time we're, we're living. And, and why am I bringing it up? Because um, we can start with lifestyle, right? We can start with exercise and diet. Now, among other things, I'm attending a diabetes clinic once a week, in more, every Thursday morning for 30 years. <laughs> and the first thing we tell our patient is exercise and lose weight. And the success rate of that is about 3%, okay? Uh, by the way, if they would do it, uh, they might not be diabetics for a while, okay? But it's very hard to do. But we live in different time, and I think people are afraid of COVID, and I think maybe it's time for you to start thinking about interacting with the environment, because this is a way to build the immunity, to decrease the inflammation, and to uh, make your body stronger for what's coming. And the two very simple advice that are based on biology of aging really are A, to exercise. And for older people, it means walking. And if you could have uh, your iPhone, which has uh, the health app where, where it'll count step or, or a Fitbit where <laughs> you can watch your step. I think if, if, if you never moved before, if you never stepped before, start doing it and get to 10,000 step eventually. And I think the cardiovascular effect of that will be terrific if I had to choose one thing. The nutrition is a little bit more interesting because Nutrition is tough and it's even tougher now because people are at home. So what are they going to do? They're going to eat. Um, and there's a, a diet that is based on our knowledge uh, in aging that many people find easy to do, much easier than any diets they had before. And it's called intermittent fasting or known more as the 16 fasting eight hour eating diet, 16-8. And let me just tell you why I believe in that, because my studies in animals always include as a control group, the caloric restricted animal. When you take animals, you take brothers into two groups, one of them they eat as much as they want, and the others you give them 30 or 40% less, those that eat less live 30, 40% more. It's really quite incredible. They live healthier and they live longer. And, um, and what, what, what people started doing is saying, well, you know, how do we translate it to human? 
less breakfast, less lunch, less dinner. But that's not what we did. We did something else. We would come in the morning and we would give all the food for the day to those rats or mice that were hungry. <laughs> and they would eat everything within 20 minutes, an hour. And then they were fasting for 23 more hours. So in fact, what we've done is not caloric restriction. We did intermittent fasting. Every day, those rats were fasting for a prolonged period of time. So when we started giving the animals just less food throughout the day, they still were leaner, but they didn't live longer. So uh, the fasting period from an aging perspective is really important. Now, what I find, and I'm doing this uh, intermittent fasting, which really means for me that I'm skipping breakfast. So yesterday I ate at, I finished dinner at 8 p.m. And today, actually it was uh, 12.30, uh, I ate lunch and I didn't eat anything in between. I drank coffee, I drank water, but I didn't eat anything. I didn't have any glucose. Now, what you find out is that maybe you get hungry at 10 or 11, but you have only two hours to go, <laughs> okay? If, if, you, if I give you three months diet, you could, you could break any day, okay? But if you have only one hour to go, you'll stick it up and, 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 and do it. Uh, you're losing weight that way, and you're upgrading some of the important biology of aging, your autophagy, you get uh, ketones that, are, uh, that are, are probably important for longevity. And, uh, and, and I would say this is a good uh, thing to do because at the end you have eight hours to do whatever you wanna do and you find out that you even don't really need to pick up all the food that you missed at breakfast. So many people I know do this. And I, I was just looking, I, I spoke to uh, Dr. Rudy Tannis um, last week, Alzheimer's guy, same yeah. deal. Yeah, intermittent fasting. Um, so in your book, Age Later, um, you're, you, you, I mean, you just mentioned, let's eliminate the bad stuff before we start um, experimenting with things to, to add. What are, what are the other bad things that we should eliminate? Um. So uh, if, if you're asking what treatments are out there that we shouldn't, uh, what treatments are there that we shouldn't do or, or generally? Uh, I guess my question was rather than um, us each engaging in our private science experiments on ourselves, um, there are certain things that um, we probably shouldn't be doing in the first place, um, which may be more beneficial than trying to add things to our behaviors. Did, did I get that right? Uh, yeah. Give me example. I'm not sure where you're going with this. Okay, so um, you must have something in mind. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, so uh, you know, uh, myself, um, uh, I'm very careful with my glycemic load. So um, I, I feel that there's a lot of bad things that come from eating a high glycemic load diet. Yeah. So I I agree with that, and I think there's a, an evidence for that. You know. I feel worse for the nutritional scientist, okay? Because the nutritional scientist came one day and said, Let, let's just make basic rules. Like uh, we have to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, okay? And like 65% of, of the calories should come with carbohydrates. Those were, that, that was the start, but it ended up being really wrong assumption for a society that had uh, availability to lots of things. And what they find themselves is running, you know, changing the rules everywhere. And it's really bad to train a nutritionist that every year she believes she knows the, the Bible and every year the Bible is changed, right? Now lipids, you know, lipids are really much more important because you have to, 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 to cut carbohydrates. And if you give, give too much proteins, they, they activate mTOR, which you don't want to do with aging, right? So it, it's really, really interesting how, uh, how you went through that. So th this is where we are. We are in a trial uh, and error part. We have to change assumption. We have to 
in particular recognize, and that's apropos intermittent fasting, that breakfast is not the most important meal of the day, at least not for adults. <laughs> I, I don't know because, because there's some women that are telling you that I'm killing their kids. And I, 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 I don't know, <laughs> I'm not a pediatrician, I don't know. But for adults, breakfast is not the most important food. In fact, in evolution, the hunter used to wake up in the morning, chase the deer, get them in the afternoon, have a barbecue, right? One meal a day <laughs> and no, no cakes <laughs> and no Kellogg's in the morning. <laughs> so so that, that's how we were built and we have to recognize that. It also helps that we are all on statins. So the fat effect is not, uh, is not as harmful as it could have been because we're kind of taking uh, uh, care of that. But uh, certainly uh, it seems that carbohydrates, you know, 65% carbohydrates are too much. Yeah. Uh, what are the other things that we should know about? What are the, do you want to give us a little, um, uh, some insight into the book and um, what you'd like to get across from the book? Well, the, you know, the book, the, the book has several things. By the way, the book, you can choose chapter or sub-chapter. But the book takes you through and, and gives you the feeling how this process that we went through, discovering the biology of aging, how, how it has been done and what are some of those examples. For example, the caloric restriction story is there, okay? Uh, leading to intermittent fasting. There are other stories like that, but they're also going in and out of my centenarians. I've learned a lot from those centenarians. Um, I learned a lot about them, but I also learned a lot from their genetics. And so I'm bringing part of the genetics to understand how we use the genetics. You know, if you're born with genetics that makes you centenarians, that doesn't mean that we need a genetic treatment for that. In fact, we, we don't. We can design a drug. We're just finding mechanisms and we can design a drug for that. So this is the story of how we evolved. It's the story, I'm involved in two biotechs. So I'm talking about how we move to biotech, how we move to uh, drug development. I'm talking about some of the things that are out there uh, that are, I feel safe to recommend, but I don't always recommend. I sometimes show the difficulty. For example, vitamin D. Okay, everybody's on vitamin D, but there hasn't been really many studies that show that vitamin D changed outcomes. <laughs> vitamin D is still kind of, I don't totally get it or understand it. If you're a woman and you have osteoporosis, vitamin D is good for you. But I have a vitamin D deficiency. I asked my doctor what to do. He said, take vitamin D. I said, show me. He said, well, men with osteoporosis, they also, you know, so I did my bone scan and I have very thick bones, you know, five Z scores above the average. So I, I don't know, maybe my vitamin D, D is low because my bone is thick. I don't know. So, so I'm giving examples of what you shouldn't do. And I think the best genetic example, 60% of my centenarians have a um, genetics that is uh, consistent with less activation of the growth hormone axis. Okay, not only of growth hormone, but growth hormone receptor, IGF, IGF receptor. Uh, I, I know that it means nothing to many people, but, but that's all the cascade that leads to action of the growth hormone. And I think it's important, on one hand, it's not really surprising, though I didn't, until I found it, I really didn't think it's going to be important for humans, but in nature, all the small live longer, the small dogs live longer, and the ponies live longer. And when you mutate growth hormone and you, know, you either add it to transgenic mice or take it away, the more growth hormone, the less healthy, the less, the less time they live. So this is consistent with nature, but it's absolutely amazing that it seems to be, you know, the most, it, it's the pathway that is most affected in, um, in my centenarians. And I guess what I'm saying also, since growth hormone 
is a therapy used by many to target aging, I think it's probably dangerous <laughs> because it seems that the people who are most protected are the people who live longest. So I, I think that's an important message. And I go through, because I did, to prove that I did animal studies where I gave um, an, a, an inhibitor for the IGF receptor, one of those growth hormone, I inhibited it. And the mice lived uh, longer and healthier. So, um, so, so uh, the whole idea is we need drug. Well, there is drug. So we need drug to show the preclinical proof of concept. And I think, uh, uh, and so I think that's aging research is really exciting. <laughs> that is so, I, I, um, I, I'm familiar with the, uh, the Stanford trim trial um, and Greg Fahey who it was essentially low dose HGH, human, human growth hormone to um, stimulate the growth of the thymus um, uh, to help with um, uh, immune response. But he gave metformin too. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, Everybody picks what they like, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Um, I, um, all I can say is um, of all of you folks that work in this field, um, it, it's just so the complicated interactions. Um, it just, it's like a Gordian knot that you guys have to undo and, but, but you know, let, let me put it a little differently. I, I don't find, you know, aging is very complex, but that doesn't mean that you can't do good with one drug, okay? So, so let, let me explain that. We, we had a paper in cell metabolism just a couple of months ago where we basically asked, where does, the met, where does metformin hit um, the hallmarks of aging. I told you there are eight hallmarks right. of aging. Okay, where does metformin hit? And we reviewed the literature and we had our own data and stuff. And the answer is clear. They hit all of them. <laughs> they hit all of them. Really? You know, I'm asking, really? Metformin does it all? Well, what metformin does it hits some of them in particular, probably two in particular, but by doing that, it fixes aging on the cellular level. Once it fixes aging, a lot of things are being now, uh, are going from old to young, okay? It's the consequence, it's not the effect, it's the consequence. So one of the problem with metformin, people came every time with a new paper, they say, oh, that's how it worked, that's how it worked. Well, they are right, but that doesn't mean that that's what it did primarily. Uh, once you have a drug that really targets aging, it fixes a lot of things. So you think, oh, that's what it's doing, but it probably is not. So what, what I'm telling you, when you say complexity and stuff, it is complex. And we did something really smart. We started to understand aging through longevity. We, we found out all the animals that you could make live longer. And we discovered a lot about aging. And some of them are monogenetic, <laughs> you know, animals. And, and then you realize that even if aging is complex, it doesn't mean that it's complex to fix it at all. I like that. <laughs> um, keep it simple, as they say. Um, I just quickly, before we close up, is there anything you see coming up in the next um, couple of years? Um, any breakthroughs you see in longevity that um, you want to let people know about? So, you know, I'm, I'm quoting Bill Gates, who said, um, we are overestimating what we can do in two years and underestimating what we can do in a decade. Uh -huh. and, and, and I believe that that's quite true. I'm seeing how things are happening. So l let me say something, and this is without a timeline, okay? But I'll tell you why I'm so excited for the future. You can take a, a sperm of an 80-year-old man, okay? And fertilize an egg of a 50-year-old woman, okay? And you'll have a kid. 
and we know how to measure the biological age of the eggs and sperm, okay? So now you have the fertilized egg and the embryo is being formed. And when you look at the cells of the embryo, they didn't remember the age of the father and mother. They reverted to zero again, okay? We figured out in this situation how to do that. And I think this is going to be what we're thinking about and what we're uh, going through from now on. Can we erase the age? Can we erase the age every few months or a year? Can we do it safely so that we don't get to be old even? Uh, and some of these related projects are ongoing and they are in biotech. They're not as dramatic as I told you, but they're specific uh, for certain diseases or conditions where it can be done. Wow. The future is bright. The future is bright. <laughs> Wonderful. Nir, thank, <clears throat> excuse me, thank you so much for having, uh, taking the time today, <clears throat> excuse me, and to be with us. Um, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. I, I love the... Um, you know, your metformin research is really, um, it's been really impactful to people. Um, so I'm glad that you had COVID and you're okay. And I'm, I can't yeah, wait to- I, I hope that you keep positive. I hope I helped in that and also keep negative from the virus. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. I can't wait to find out what my, my, uh, my COVID toe with its non, uh, that I don't have antibodies. That just doesn't seem fair. <laughs> I know, I know. I'll figure that out. I understand that. All right. Thank you okay. so much. Have a great Thanks. rest of the day, Nir. Thanks. You too. It was a pleasure. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Super Age Show today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Super Age wherever you get your podcasts. And you can reach out and connect with me anytime you want. I really look forward to hearing what you're up to, what your questions are. We can ask our guests um, any questions that you send in. Love them. And you can do that at david at superage.com. It's david at superage.com. Shoot me an email. Um, let's connect. Let's find out what's going on. And the next time you have some time, you know, maybe you're on a run or you're on your spin bike or you're driving to the store, you know, give us a listen. We're here to help you become the best version of yourself. Let's superage this thing. Have a great week.